Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 41. Today we'll be reading Book 10, chapters 31 through 34 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the readings, a quick look at what we're covering today. So recall we have described this whole movement, the latter half of Book 10, as a kind of general examination of conscience, as Augustine makes something of a general confession. And he's been going from the more bodily to the less bodily and onwards towards his interior life. So we've already heard about the sense of touch, uh, specifically concerning sexual desire. But here he will pass through taste, smell, hearing, and sight. And then things will get even less bodily still in the chapters that remain. So that gives you a sense of his order so that we can track with him and appreciate his insights. Here we go. Let's get started. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 31. The day has another evil, and how I wish it would suffice for that day. By eating and drinking, we repair the daily destruction that our body undergoes until that day when you will destroy both stomach and food, when you will slay my emptiness by bestowing a wondrous fullness, clothing that which is corruptible with what is incorruptible. But for now, this need is sweet for me, and how must I fight against it so that I not be taken captive by it, waging war daily through fasting, often bringing my body into subjection, removing my pains by pleasure? For hunger and thirst are kinds of pains. They burn and kill like a fever unless the medicine of nourishment comes to our aid. Since this is at hand, through the consolation of your gifts, by which land, water, and air serve our weakness, our calamity is called gratification. You have taught me this so that I should learn to take food for my physical needs. However, I am beset by concupiscence while I pass from the discomfort of emptiness to the contentment of feeling replenished. For that very passage is pleasant, and there is no other path to this necessary destination. Although health is the cause of eating and drinking, it is joined by an attendant and dangerous pleasure that strives to make me do for its own sake what I say I do or I wish to do for health's sake. Nor do they have the same measure, for what is enough for health falls short of what pleasure desires. And often it is uncertain whether bodily needs are still asking for sustenance or whether deceptive and greedy pleasures is offering its services. The unhappy soul rejoices in this uncertainty, which it uses as an excuse for shielding itself, glad that it is not clear what is needed for healthy moderation, so that the matter of gratification might be disguised for it under the appearance of pursuing health. Daily do I strive to resist these temptations, calling upon your right hand and bringing to you my soul's agitations. 
for I have no settled counsel regarding this problem. I hear the voice of my God commanding, quote, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, end quote. Drunkenness is far from me, and have mercy upon me that it never comes near me. But eating to fullness sometimes does creep up on your servant. Have mercy that it may be far from me, for no one can be continent unless you give it to him to be so. You give many things to us when we pray for them, and whatever good we have received before praying, this too we received from you, so that we might afterwards know that we also received this from you. I was never a drunkard, but I have known those who have been made sober by you. Thus, it was equally from you that some never were such, as well as some were drunkards but no longer are. Yet in both cases, it was also from you that they knew that you were the one who gave this to them. And I also heard you say, quote, Do not follow your base desires, but restrain your appetites. Yes, by your favor I have heard words that I greatly love. Quote, we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. End quote. In other words, neither shall the first make me miserable, nor the second fill me with abundance. And I heard also, quote, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. End quote. Behold, a soldier of the heavenly host, not the dust that we are. But remember, Lord, that we are dust, and that out of dust you have fashioned man, he who once was lost but now has been found. Nor could he do this himself, for he whom I love, saying this through the same inbreathing of your inspiration, was from the same dust. The same Paul says, quote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, end quote. Strengthen me so that I too might be capable. Give what you command and command what you will. He confesses that he received what he had, and when he gloried, he did so on the Lord. And another too, I heard begging you that you might take from him the desires for food. All this shows, my holy God, that you give what is done in accord with your commandment. You have taught me, good father, that all things are pure for the pure, but that it is evil for a man to cause offense through his eating. Likewise, you have said that, quote, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, end quote. So too, quote, food will not commend us to God, end quote. And, quote, let no one pass judgment on us in questions of food and drink, end quote. And, quote, let not him who eats despise him who abstains and not let him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, end quote. All these things have I learned. Thanks and praise be to you, my God, my master, who knocks at my ears and enlightens my heart. Deliver me from all temptation. I fear not uncleanness through food, but rather through lustful desire. I know that Noah was permitted to eat all kinds of flesh that were good for food, that Elijah fed upon flesh, and that John the Baptist, who had received remarkable abstinence, himself was not impure because he ate locusts, which are living creatures. Likewise, I know that Esau was deceived through his desire for lentils, and that David rebuked himself for desiring a drink of water, and that our king was tempted with bread, not flesh. So too, your people in the desert also deserved rebuke, not for desiring flesh, but because they murmured against God out of the desire for food. Thus, placed amid such temptations, I daily strive against concupiscence in eating and drinking. For this is not the sort of thing that I can completely cut off, never touching it again, as was the case for concubinage. Thus, the bridle upon our throat must be temperately held between a grip that would be slack or stiff. And who is not, O Lord, somewhat carried beyond the limits of necessity? Such a man is quite great, and let him magnify your name. But I am not so great, for I am a sinful man. Nonetheless, I also magnify your name, and he who has overcome the world makes intercession to you for my sins, numbering me among the weak members of his body. For your eyes have seen all those in him who are imperfect, and all of them shall be written in your book. Chapter 32 I am not much concerned about charming smells. When they are not present, I do not miss them, and when they are, I do not refuse them, though always ready not to have them. 
So do I seem to myself, though perhaps I am deceived. For within me is a mournful darkness, hiding my own abilities from me, so that my mind does not readily venture to believe what it thinks about itself and its own powers. For even what is in it is mostly hidden, unless it is revealed by experience. And nobody should judge himself secure in this life, the whole of which is a trial. For he who was able to be improved from worse to better might also from better become worse. Our only hope, our only confidence, our only assured promise is your mercy. Chapter 33. Pleasures of the ear had me more firmly entangled and overcome, but you loosened these bonds and freed me. Now I do take some small repose in those melodies that are animated by the inspiration of your word when they are sung with a sweet and harmonious voice. However, I am not held captive by them and can disengage when I will. But with the words that enliven them and by which the melodies find entry into me, they try to receive some esteem in my affections, though I can scarcely give them an esteem that is suitable. For sometimes I judge that I give them more honor than is suitable, feeling that our minds are more religiously and fervently enkindled with devotion by the holy words when they are thus sung than when they are not, and that our spirit's various affections, through this sweet variation, find their own proper measures in the voice and singing, stirred up as they are through some kind of hidden correspondence. However, this contentment of the flesh, which must not be allowed to sap the soul's strength, often enchants me leading my senses no longer to wait upon reason and patiently follow her, but instead, after being admitted for the sake of reason, sense then strives to run ahead of it and lead it. Thus, I unknowingly sin in these matters, though afterwards I am aware of it. At other times, however, I am too anxious to prevent this deception. Therefore, I err by being too strict, sometimes to such a degree that I wish to banish from my ears and from the entire church the whole melody of sweet music to which David's Psalter is set. And thus, I will think it better to follow the example of Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, who would make the reader of the psalm utter it with so slight a vocal inflection that it was closer to speaking than to singing. But then again, when I remember the tears that I shed upon hearing the psalmody of your church when I was first recovering my faith, and how even now I am moved not by the singing but by what is sung with a clear voice and most suitable modulation, I acknowledge how useful this practice is. Thus, I fluctuate between the peril of sensual pleasure and wholesome experience, though I am inclined to approve the use of singing in church, though I do not proclaim this an irrevocable opinion, so that through the delight of the ears, weaker minds might rise to the feeling of devotion. However, when I happen to be more moved by the voice that is singing rather than by the words that are sung, I confess that I am guilty of sin and should not listen to such music. Behold now my state. Weep with me and weep for me, you who so control your feelings that your deeds are good. For those of you who do not experience this, these matters do not matter to you. But you, O Lord my God, hearken, behold and see, have mercy upon me and heal me, O you in whose sight I have become a riddle unto myself, and that is my infirmity. Chapter 34. Now the pleasure of my bodily eyes remains for me to confess in the hearing of the ears of your temple, those brotherly and devout ears. Thus will I conclude my confessions concerning the temptations of the lust of the flesh that still assail me as I earnestly groan, longing to be clothed with my heavenly dwelling. The eyes love fair and varied forms, along with bright and soft colors. May these not occupy my soul. Let it be occupied with God, who made these things, making them very good indeed, though he is my good, not they. And these affect me while awake, all day, nor do I have any rest from them, as I do have from music and even from voices when there is silence. But this queen of colors, the light, which bathes all that we behold, enchants me when I am engaged with other things and not heeding it directly, as it glides by me in various forms wherever I happen to be throughout the day. And so firmly does it entwine itself that if it suddenly goes away, it is sought after longingly, and if it is absent for long, it saddens the mind. 
O you who are the light that Tobias saw when with closed eyes he taught his son the way of life, going before him with the feet of charity, never swerving. Yes, you who are the light that Isaac saw when his bodily eyes were heavy and closed by old age, enabling him to bless his sons unknowingly, thereby coming to know them through his blessing. O light that Jacob saw when he too, blind in his old age, with his heart illuminated, through his sons, shed some light upon the various tribes of your people who were foreshadowed in them and mystically crossed his hands as he laid them upon his grandsons through Joseph, not as their father corrected him in view of his bodily sight, but rather as he, Jacob, inwardly discerned. This is the light. It is the one, and all who see and love it are one. But that bodily light that I spoke of earlier seasons the life of this world with an enticing and dangerous sweetness for her blind lovers. But they who know how to praise you for it, O all-creating Lord, take it up in your hymns and are not taken up by it then as they sleep. This is how I wish it would be. I resist these seductions of the eye, lest the feet with which I walk upon your ways might become ensnared. And I lift up my invisible eyes to you so that you might pluck my feet from the snare. Over and again you pluck them out for they are ensnared. I tangle myself in the snares that lie around me on all sides. But you do not cease to pluck my feet from them, for you who keep Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. How many countless trifles made by so many arts and artisans are there in our apparel, shoes, utensils, and so many other works, in pictures too, and various images, all of these far exceeding all necessary and moderate use and all our pious intentions. How many are the temptations that men have made for their eyes? Outwardly, they chase after what they themselves have made, while inwardly, they forsake him who made them and destroy what they themselves have been made to be. But my God and my glory, I hereafter also sing a hymn to you and offer a sacrifice of praise to him who offers sacrifice for me. For those beautiful patterns that are conveyed through men's souls into their skillful hands come from that beauty that is above our souls, that beauty for which my soul sighs both night and day. But those who fashion and pursue outward beauties derive from there only the rule for judging such art, not the rule for using them aright. And although they do not perceive him, he is there, so that they might not wander, but rather should retain their strength for you and not scatter it abroad upon such pleasurable weariness. And although I speak and see this, I entangle my steps with these outward beauties. Yet you pluck me out of these snares, O Lord, you pluck me out, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. For I am miserably held captive, and you pluck me free mercifully, sometimes without my even knowing it, when I am only lightly held bound, though at other times painfully so, when I am deeply ensnared by them. Okay, so maybe at the outset we can simply observe that St. Augustine is thorough, which I respect. He wants to divide up his life and divide up his attachments and desires such that he covers all his bases. And I think that we've all experienced something of this anxiety or passion, perhaps, when examining our consciences in preparation for the sacrament of confession. You want to make sure that you don't leave any stone unturned. And St. Augustine chooses to go about it by consulting his senses, like the different inputs, so that way he can determine what's disorderly or what's not yet perfect about his kind of processing of that information and then his synthesizing of it in his intellectual life. So he'll talk first here about inordinate attachment to good food, uh, which he says is, is chastened or disciplined by fasting. Uh, so this seems to a modern audience to be very, very strict because I think our sense of gluttony is if you eat so much that you can't move and you have to be rolled out of the room, then maybe you sinned. But otherwise, you're basically good, right? Uh, but here he talks about, you know, like he's almost thrown off by the delight of consumption. So he's like, I have to nourish my body, but I often go beyond that. So I need to be very, very solicitous that I don't overconsume or underconsume or 
whatever else it is. So yeah, I think this is just something for us to sensitize our 21st century consciences against the backstop of a fourth, fifth century conscience. So I don't know, what are your thoughts here about his take on gluttony? You know, when I was reading and listening and to St. Augustine here, the, I was reminded of how I believe it was when he was recounting St. Monica's life, there was this bit about her being refused water at certain points so as to not get like addicted to just drinking so that when she was older and was able to drink wine, there wouldn't be a habit of just drinking and drinking and drinking wine, which if you remember uh, in book nine, she fell into a little bit before she was kind of scolded by a slave girl and, and came out of it. So this isn't the first time we're hearing about food and consumption of food. And perhaps that as an example is, you know, helpful to illustrate the, to get through the, like the weeds, not the weeds. That makes it the saying things are, we you know we're in the weeds sometimes. I don't know. It's kind of like making an apology for it being unnecessary, but I don't know if St. Augustine thinks it the way to go, then we're going that way. So buckle up. Um, what I, th what I think about though with St. Augustine is what his consideration for eating too much, eating too little, fasting, is it points to the truth about how the appetites, our desire for bodily pleasures gets out of control very quickly. And when it does, it's very hard to rein in. It's often about satisfying ourselves, whether it's food, drink, or sex, you know, and we build these habits of like immediate comfort um, and it's very hard to break. So I think it's less of a sort of, you know, he's being scrupulous or being overbearing or that sort of thing and more of just a, a realization that we cling and these grab very quickly and and we have to be vigilant sort of i find often maybe this is the last thing i'll say in my thought here but i find often that in conversation or in the confessional or wherever about these topics that we think in terms of defense of reacting when there's temptation and sort of like reacting to the temptation but you know in fighting off and in, and growing in virtue here there's also a bit of offense we can play and that's preparing to handle the temptations before they come so i think augustine is has this in mind of like, well, how do I set up my life and my relationship to these lower goods such that I can live well with them and not be overwhelmed or overcome by them when I might be tempted to eat too much? Or, you know, he says he doesn't struggle with, with drink, but, you know, if that were the occasion or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. You know, certainly in the tradition, there's, you know, mention of the different ways in which gluttony manifests itself. You know, you could want food that's particular or you could want food that's refined or you could want too much or you could want it in the like the the wrong time but there's a kind of old christian sensibility that you know you should limit yourself to a certain extent you shouldn't overindulge you shouldn't constantly be snacking you should do it in such a way that you don't become the slave of the food such that your moods right and your attentiveness to the lord kind of rises and falls on the basis of whether or not your belly is full because then we fall into yeah, like a 19th century, 20th century kind of atheistic notion that you need to serve people's most basic needs first, as it were, in like a kind of series before you ever attend to things higher, which is a, a kind of simple way of excluding those things higher. It's like, no, 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 no. God corresponds to us regardless of whether we're hungry or thirsty or, you know, sated and, you know, overindulged. And I think that um, St. Augustine is very sensitive to that. And I think we can profit from his sensitivity. And when we take stock of our own lives, we can think, okay, I'm telling myself certain stories about what I need, uh, what I rely upon in order to live a healthy, happy human life. Okay, what degree or to what extent are those stories perhaps partially false? 
Have I just indulged and have I just kind of coddled my humanity such that, um, yeah, my kind of interior equilibrium is highly dependent upon the material conditions of my existence and I'm not really relying upon the Lord. Like I'm not really trusting in him, truth be told. And that's tough. Now, does that mean that, you know, if you're hypoglycemic or diabetic, you don't listen to your doctor and say, I'm just going to do what Father Gregory and Father Jacob Bertrand said. What I heard was fast for four days straight. No, we're not saying that. We're not saying that. But we are saying that secondary goods, like lower goods, they make good servants, but bad masters. And we don't want to become mastered by them in such a way that we're just kind of tossed to and fro by the whim and uh, caprice of satisfaction and satiation. So that's just a brief thought then about taste he kind of cruises through smell he said smell not a big problem for me <laughs> it's like cheers to you saint augustine uh, and then he goes to the pleasures of hearing this too is another hot take for those of you who aren't familiar what a hot take is a younger generation says hot take when somebody says something controversial that might upset all those listening uh, not intending to do so but intending to get at the truth by a kind of savage interpretation so saint augustine here with a pleasures of hearing hot take he has this notion that you can get too stirred up by music. That doesn't surprise any of us. Um, but he he says, all right, we should focus on the words, lest our affections kind of outpace our reasons. But it's fascinating that, that he's kind of undecided whether it's good to have music in church or not. Uh, so fascinating debate. Father Jacob Bertrand, your hot take on St. Augustine's hot take. Well, I'll say this. Here at St. Dennis, where I am the pastor we've had, a bit of an issue keeping a music director um, because they found more fitting jobs. So that it's been great, you know, super happy. But uh, <laughs> we've gone through the liturgy at several chunks of time with without music or with limited music, and it is not what I'm used to. Uh, I'll tell you that. So I am pro music in the liturgy. I I think that his caution of being stirred up by music and not paying attention to the words is. It's the debate, which we aren't going to get into, but between sort of contemporary Christian and Catholic music versus the more traditional kind of Catholic music that we use in the, what's the appropriate thing in the liturgy. That's a debate to be had. But the question of having music or not, you know, having music any type or not is is an interesting one. I, I'm very pro music in the liturgy. I think the church through the centuries has now become accustomed. But if we remember back to, I believe it was book nine when St. Augustine recounted the persecution of the Christians in Milan by the Empress Eustinia, that at that point, he talks about the Christians singing in, in the church is as they had kind of had their sit in. And this was kind of a unique experience for him. So it, I think that that sort of gives a little insight into the fact that like singing, chanting hymns wasn't always a regular thing in church, you know? So now he's, he's debating it a bit as to whether it should be at all. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for our own 21st century application, I think it's good to be cognizant again of an unhealthy reliance upon music. You know, it's, it's good to listen to music or it can be good to listen to music, but not just at the level of, okay, are these lyrics appropriate or do these lyrics speak of themes which are perhaps inappropriate? So not, we're setting that aside for a second, but just the music itself, music can be very stirring. It can be very animating. It can be very whatever, exciting. And the question is whether we ought always to indulge in that because sometimes, you know, you might find yourself up in the middle of the night with the lyrics of a popular song cruising through your mind and think, if I hadn't listened to that song, I would have an easier time sleeping. Or you might use music for mood adjustment. You're in a you're in a tough spot. You're very tired. So you put on a little bit of praise and worship to kind of get you back uh, kind of on track. Okay, cool. But 
what do we say about that time of sadness, that time of anxiety? How, how might you have given that to the Lord in a different way? Because if your instinct is always to rely upon music, then might you miss out meeting the Lord in the depth of your sorrow? I don't know, honestly, but I think those are interesting questions to ask. And I'm glad that St. Augustine is doing his accounting because it helps us to pose them to ourselves and uh, yeah, to kind of journey further on with the Lord. Yeah, the it's a question of do the pleasures of hearing kind of become a crutch or a sort of a way by which to sidestep reality? You know, do they drum up emotions that aren't really there? Do they make us sad when we don't really need to be sad? Remember, Augustine talked about going to see plays and people this way back when, you know, would just cry at other people's sorrow, but not at their own sorrow. You know, is it that sort of thing or is it a way to kind of ignore things? And that's sometimes you just need a break, but it is a good to ask those questions of what are we using it for? And is it a way to sidestep reality, us, God, God's working in our life? So it's not an unhealthy or I was going to say an ungood. Is that a word? It's, it's it not is now. a bad, bad is the word for ungood. It's, it's not a bad <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. I think there was like a Disney song, like a billion years ago, a very, very unbirthday to you. So if that's on the books, you can, you can get away with anything. Um, all right, the last thing that he passes through is pleasures of sight. Again, another Augustinian hot take, because he'll talk about this notion of like aesthetic attachment, that you can become a kind of aesthete. For those of you who aren't familiar with that word, that notion, it's where you become kind of hyper attentive to the appearance, to the beauty, to the aspect of things. And if they are not especially pleasing to the sight or sufficiently pleasing to the sight, you find it repulsive, horrible. Um, I was trying to think of modern applications of this, and I think it's not too terribly difficult for us because, because we joined the order and because a lot of our structures were built late 19th century through the mid 20th century. There are quite a few of our structures which are kind of ugly. So like a lot of cinder block, a lot of low ceilings, a lot of fluorescent lights. And it's like, okay, is that going to undo your religious life? Because at St. Louis Bertrand in Louisville, Kentucky, the windows are like arrow slits and the glass is tempered so no light gets in. Is that going to be the end of your vocation? I think the answer has to be no, because the Lord has called us to a higher purpose. And even in the midst of ugliness, he can still do with it something something glorious, something beautiful. You know, obviously, we're talking about a different register there of beauty. So um, he's kind of encouraging us to not rely overly much on sight, but rather on faith. I don't know if you have uh, further thoughts on this last kind of piece of his accounting for the senses. I just thought of something different. I mean, in the same vein, but something different. I thought of like Instagram mm. and that sort of thing of, you know, when, when we, well, I don't have an Instagram account, but when you kind of scroll through and just look at people's pictures, it's, it's often just a, a sight thing. You know, is that person attractive? Are they wearing the clothing or not enough clothing, you know, to just to kind of draw your eye to it. And I guess we get this, you know, even in the, in real life walking around, but you can see, if you think of it, well, you can think of it as Father Gregory described or me or both. But if you think of it in those terms of like the social media, the kind of the clickbait, but with like what we're looking at, um, you can see, I think, what St. Augustine is cautioning against, that we just become used to looking at things as objects and not, you know, as Father Gregory said, the truth of what they are in the case of social media, you know, that they're human beings or in the case of like physical buildings and that sort of thing that they're meant to draw us. To, to greater things, but also that we ought not be driven and defined by just our like, oh, that's pretty or like attractive to look at, you know, that there's something more that we're, we're drawn to. We're meant to be drawn up and drawn in. Amen. Yeah. So the world is a kind of sacramental reality, lowercase s and sacramental said, 
you know, analogically or metaphorically. So it ought ultimately to refer our gaze to the Most High God, who is its creator and its end. And if we get lost in the beautiful things themselves, the loveliness of created goods, that can be a risk for us, or that can be a kind of temptation to stay here, to cling here and refuse to be, I don't know, directed further on to, to things celestial. Okay, that's what we have for you today. And that's our prayer for you, that as we grow uh, in the grace of God, that we might be drawn through our senses to the transcendent realities which lie in God. So know of our prayers for you, please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Thank you.